Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. Every three weeks, Father Jeffrey and I release an hour-long episode regarding an aspect of Orthodox life. However, only patrons get access to the last half hour of our discussion. If you'd like to hear the rest of this conversation, you can head over to pryingpriest.com support. But for now, enjoy the first half of this double feature. Well, welcome to our first double feature, Father Jeffrey. And welcome to our first double feature, all of our listeners. So we're trying something new to add a bit of dynamism to our regular scheduled programming. So every third week, we're going to be doing what we're calling a double feature, where we pick a topic based on the time of the year that this episode will be released. And we do a half hour on that topic. And then we do a second half hour on that topic for our uh, private podcast on Patreon for all our patrons. Um, so uh, you can hop over there if you want to hear the second half of this. Uh, this will be released on uh, a Monday and then the following Patreon episode on the Thursday. And Father Jeffrey, I thought we could pick a topic to do with Christmas, with the Nativity of Christ, since it is the week leading up to Christmas. And I had an interesting conversation recently with a friend of mine who staunchly claimed that he believes that the Nativity, the birth of Christ, should be a more important holiday, more important feast day in the mindset of Christians than Easter. That that the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Christ is sort of, I mean, I'm not going to put this in his mouth, but almost an afterthought to the actual work of salvation, which is the incarnation itself, uh, the, the conception and the birth of, of Christ. So for the purposes of this podcast, Father Jeffrey, I am going to steel man his argument. So I'm <laughs> going to represent him as best I can. I'm going to provide the best arguments that can come to my head uh, to claim that Christmas is actually more important than the death and resurrection of Christ. And then you can offer uh, the opposite perspective of Easter being more important than Christmas. Does that sound reasonable? It does indeed. Yes. That's, um, let's go for it. Right. So I, I guess one of the first things to notice is the fact that people actually treat Christmas way more important than Easter. So wouldn't that point to wouldn't that point to the centrality of Christmas anyways? You know, every good um argument uh, starts with allowing as much as you can for the other side. So I'm going to give you this one. Absolutely. Um I think it's very easy to conclude by looking at the world and certainly over the last century or so uh, Christmas is celebrated in our families, in our society in in a much much bigger way than than Easter ever is. And uh, so, yeah, of course, it's a very natural conclusion, you know, to draw. And in fact, you know, there are good reasons, you know, for that kind of universality of, of the Christmas uh, festival. Um, they point to, you know, 
the connection of Christmas to kind of winter feasts in all human societies and cultures. It points to the kind of universal acclamation of the birth of a child, right? I mean, who could object to such a, a wonderful event? And, and even those who would look a little bit more closely at the life of Jesus would say, you know, this is a good thing, regardless of where it ends up or how you interpret where that story ends up. You know, certainly at the beginning, you know, this is something that has a little bit more universal uh, proclamation and acclaim and, and and so forth and so you know absolutely it, it makes an awful lot of sense to say this is the the main festival the one that affects the whole world and uh, you know of course even in the Orthodox Church there's a lot that you could kind of bring to bolster that argument right the the whole idea of heaven and earth joining of of the incarnation being that moment where the divine and the human come together where you know the uncreated meets the created and uh you know we celebrate that not only at nativity but in theophany in, in such a marvelous way with the, this whole celebration of of the ultimate meaning and purpose of creation so you know certainly there's an awful lot to be said for that argument you know um and although, you know, in the Orthodox Church, we have, uh, you know, we celebrate Pascha as, as outside of the 12 great feasts. It's not counted amongst the 12, but amongst the other 12 that are considered the, the main feasts, Nativity as well as Theophany come to the fore in, in a way that, you know, we don't consider them at all on the same level, say, as, you know, the entrance of the Theotokos into the temple in, in November. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's, it's we don't you know break from from work for a couple of weeks. We don't gather in our families around those other feasts in the way that we do at, at Christmas. So I'll give you all that for sure. I think there's mm-hmm. there's a mm-hmm. whole case to be made there. But of course, the interesting thing is to kind of figure out why and how our society you know got to that point of making Christmas the big deal over mm-hmm. say Easter. You know, because you'd have thought that in a, a culturally Christian context, um, you know that that. Easter would have at least, you know, a kind of equal footing with, with Christmas, but it's certainly not the case. There are you know, infinitely more references to Christmas in our culture than there are to to Easter. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it's interesting to see how in history, that's a very recent thing indeed, right? And uh, it a lot of the, the kind of ultimate blame, as, as you can call it blame, for that is at the hands of the Puritans and their arrival in, in North America, because they, of course, tried to suppress both <laughs> Christmas and Easter as pagan, you know, kind of festivals. Oh, really? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there was this real effort by the early Americans to say, um, you know, we're not going to do either of these things. They're kind of, they're, they're too associated with me- medieval revelry and mm. the upsetting of hierarchies and, you know, lewdness and drunkenness, you know, and, and all of that kind of thing. So we're going to, you know, and, and you, that's where there's the origin of, well, Easter is actually, a, you know, comes from a pagan god's name, uh, Eostre, kind of associated with Astarte, the, the kind of Babylonian goddess. And then, you know, Christmas, of course, is just a, a, a Roman festival that, that the Christians supplanted. All of that kind of mythology around the origins of, of the feast comes from that, that Puritan instinct. And so mm-hmm. they were suppressed for the longest time in, in kind of popular awareness. And then what happened is in the Romantic period, in the Victorian period, the 19th century, where you got this kind of uh, rise of nostalgia and kind of em- emphasis on, you know, childhood and, uh, you know, the, the whole, you know, the, the beauty of, of seeing things through a child's eyes and, and, the, and the rise of, of gift giving and, and honoring families and, and all of that. 
one of the two festivals came back and that was Christmas. And so everything we associate with Christmas, whether it's Santa Claus or Christmas trees or Christmas carols and so forth, uh, and all of the, the family gathering and gift giving and everything, most of that comes in a, from the 19th century, right? And it was, mm -hmm. you know, by the turn of the 20th century, we have now this uh, complete reversal of what you would have seen in the Middle Ages where Easter was by far seen as the most important festival. But culturally, you know, as I say, it, it appeals to people because who's going to object to all of that stuff? Nostalgia for childhood, family gatherings, gift giving, you know, the idea of, you know, elves and reindeer and, and all of this stuff. I mean, it, it, it really appeals to a wider audience than say the death of the God man on the cross. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, which has a much more niche market as it were. So, <laughs> Th that's what I'll, I'll grant you in, in the kind of greater scheme right, of right. this argument. So. Well, I want to make I want to make a narrative argument for the centrality of Christmas over Easter, right? So, so we've talked at length in this podcast about that great narrative U shape, right? And, and I think that the Christmas story offers a very um, I don't know if the holistic is the right word, but an all encompassing narrative experience of that great u-shape and especially being at that the bottom of it right so so in our year at least in the northern hemisphere the days are dark right everything is is dark and and there's something about our cultures that actually there's something about many cultures that makes them develop christmas carols there's something about singing that keeps your heart cheery in the bleak midwinter so to speak and so first of all we are experiencing this this time of year and then this story plugs perfectly into that season where it's the light that begins to shine in the darkness, right? And it's that first turning of that great U-shape um, from orientation all the way down to disorientation. And then uh, this is the time where actually the switch happens and we start moving towards orientation. So that's my next argument is, is based on that narrative U-shape that I think Christmas, something about the holistic experience of Christmas offers a better expression of that U-shape. What do you make of that argument? Well, I mean, again, there's an awful lot going for that, right? I mean, that you, you've, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, why it is that this has this kind of universal appeal. Because, you know, I mentioned that, you know, all cultures have a kind of winter festival of some kind. And, of course, that's precisely about at that darkest point of the year, we remember the the birth of light, right? In some parts of the world, I mean, it's completely dark, right? You go to a certain latitude, you'll find that there is no daytime at all for a period. And then, you know, the light comes again, and then that light grows and grows. And precisely that is what, uh, you know, we're doing at the time of the winter solstice, where we're looking at that. And so when, when even the most pagan, person in our society hangs up a string of lights to brighten the darkness at, at this time. They're doing something that is profoundly incarnational, profoundly Christian and prophetic, right? Even if they have no clue, they think they're just making, you know, their house pretty, or they're just, you know, providing, as you say, that bit of cheer amidst the kind of darkness and, and misery and cold of, of, of that time of year. But it is a prophetic statement that the light enters the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. Now, if we're going to say that, um, 
you know, that therefore elevates this narratively above, you know, the Easter story, I think what we would want to then look at is what's happening on the cross, right? And that in Christian theology and thinking is actually the most dark point of human history, right? That is the greatest point of descent where even the darkest of darknesses is overcome by the light. And so in a sense, yes, Christmas, Nativity, and Theophany, and, and all of the celebration of the Incarnation is pointing you know, towards that. But what it's actually pointing towards in the ultimate sense is the cross and the resurrection. And so uh, absolutely it's important symbolically, iconologically, it's pointing at this greater reality, which ultimately is expressed by the death of the God-man, Jesus Christ, on the cross, where he becomes most fully Emmanuel, God with us. Because at what point does he most fully identify with being human? And the human experience is when he touches and enters into death itself, right? That most fundamental human experience, the thing, that last enemy, that is, as it's called in, in the New Testament. And that is the point at which the darkness seemingly wins, right? But in the words of the, the great, you know, evangelist C.S. Lewis, there is, you know, deeper magic still, right? The, there is a, a, an overcoming of, of that darkness in the, the life that is born at the point where the God-man is put to death and that death is overthrown. And so what we're pointing at at the nativity is actually reaches its fullness, its climax in the cross and, and the resurrection, which is why in the earliest church, the incarnation was seen primarily through the lens of the cross, not the manger in Bethlehem, right? So um, and we can continue to explore that throughout this uh, this episode, but in, in, in a very great extent, the, the, the stories of the infancy of Christ and everything are a reading backwards into the early life of Jesus, what happens at Golgotha and, and in the death and resurrection. Mm -hmm. So the, the next tactic I want to take in steel manning this argument is that birth story, so it, this, this one comes from scriptural patterns. This argument comes from scriptural patterns. So birth stories hold a central place in the scriptures, right? There's, there's these very key birth stories for key figures. So um, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Samson, Samuel, uh, Mary, John, John the Baptist, that is. Uh, Mary, I should say, that one's not in scripture, but um, it's part of our Orthodox tradition, the story of, mm -hmm. of Mary's birth. Uh, so I guess... Uh, the question or the the argument here is that most of these characters, their death is not uh, recounted. Yeah, for most of the characters, that, actually, for most of them, they are recounted, but they are not as central as um, as their birth narratives. Clearly, um, so we have this very strong pattern of birth narratives, and it seems that the story of Jesus' birth would fall well within this very, um, very. Uh, strong narrative scriptural pattern, whereas the death narratives don't seem to follow that kind of a pattern. So wouldn't that point to the nativity being a more uh, 
a more central scriptural story? Again, you know, there's something to be said for that argument, for sure. Um, the you've recounted, you know, a pattern that recurs throughout the scriptures that uh, we we should take, you know, note of. And in fact, in you could argue that to some extent, in the crafting or retelling of the birth of Christ, uh, there is, you know, more than a passing nod to some of those you know stories so for example uh the song of mary the magnificat which is sung at the announcement of the coming of the birth of christ by the archangel gabriel the that great hymn of you know my soul magnifies the lord and so forth which we find in the gospel of luke it comes more or less directly from the song of Hannah, right? The the mother of, of Samuel and a very similar pattern, you know, and of course that makes sense. I mean, Mary grows up in that tradition and, and, and we've talked before about how narrative forms and shapes us and we enter into that story. And so when when we ourselves experience something of the story of God and enter into that life, we're going to connect to patterns that are already there. So the telling of the story of the birth of Christ is, in some senses, uh, uh, the, the culmination and, and, and recapitulation of, of those other birth stories, right? It's, it's the fulfillment of them. And ultimately, it's the fulfillment of that birth story of the whole people of Israel, right? And so in the Gospels, in different ways, that's told and, and reshaped by, you know, recounting, you know, what it was that Israel went through. You know, I called my son out of Egypt you know, is one of the prophecies um, that uh, is referred to. Well, of course, that was about the people of Israel being the son of God and being called out of their captivity in Egypt under the Pharaoh and Moses leading them, you know, through the Red Sea into the wilderness. Well, in the Gospels, you know, Christ as an infant is taken into Egypt to flee from, from Herod and he's called out of Egypt, you know, in fulfillment of that prophecy. Well, it's a kind of secondary fulfillment or ultimately a fulfillment and culmination of the story of Israel. And of course he then passes through the waters of baptism and then goes into the desert like Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And so, you know, to a very great extent, those stories that you're pointing to are the backstory that of, of the, of the true and ultimate story uh, that is told in in the life, you know, of Christ. But but where where is the climax of, of all of that? Where where is that that leading to? I suppose that the ultimate question would have to be: Is the incarnation as conceived principally in terms of Christ's birth and infancy? Is that the fullness of what God has to offer in terms of self revelation? in terms of showing us what it means to be human and showing us what it means to be God and bringing those, those two things together. In other words, you know, the, the, the kind of classic question is, you know, did God need to die in Jesus for all of this to be affected, for, for our salvation to be accomplished, for us to be brought in, you know, from our present passing away age into the life of the age to come? Was the death of Christ necessary? And the thrust of the Gospels appears to be, yes, to bring that whole story that begins, you know, as you rightly point out, with these miraculous births, with, you know, the whole story of Israel and everything, 
to bring that story culminated and recapitulated in Jesus Christ to its fullness, it requires not only that descent into the flesh, but also that further descent into, you know, meeting death and overcoming death, rising again. And then ultimately, and this is the, the, the feast that is probably more neglected than any other one and, and, and to our great detriment when we do so, it culminates in the ascension of Christ to the throne of the heavens where he is revealed as the true Lord of the whole universe. Right and and will ultimately be acknowledged as such in his appearing when he comes in glory, and so the 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 descent in terms of nativity according to the flesh has to be paired at the other end with the ascent to the right hand of God to to reign for all time as the the Lord and King of all, and so you know th- those two moments are extremely important indeed, but from the earliest church and from the gospels themselves, they are understood and only given meaning because of that central reality of the, the, the sacrifice of God on the cross that was a voluntary act. So it, didn't, it wasn't necessary in the sense of, of being thrust upon God. In Jesus, God chooses that death. It's a voluntary death when he gave himself up for the life of the world. But that clearly is you know the the event around which everything else hangs in fact you know the fathers of the church will talk about the very beginning of creation being an image of the resurrection right and so you know the saint basil points that out in in his uh, six days book where he talks about the six days of creation the first day of creation he says is in which is of course the first day of the week the eighth day of the week is an image of that eighth day the re- the day of the resurrection the day of the lord um yom yahweh you know where the lord comes and reveals fully what it means to be god fully what it means to be a human being and brings you know, the whole reality of, of salvation to its culminating moment. Mm-hmm. So if I'm picking up what you're putting down, it's that there are these different understandings of, let's say, the descent down that U-shape. One is the incarnation, or the birth itself is one form, but the ultimate descent is, is through his death. And then that's where the real ascent in the resurrection into the ascension happens. Um, yeah. Am I picking that up right? Yeah, I mean they're they're all interrelated, and so I mean part of the the problem of this whole discussion is that we're 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 separating out yeah. things that are actually you know all interconnected, and and anybody who goes to you know a feast in the Orthodox Church knows this, right? We we never you know by by focusing on one or another aspect of the story of God, we are never isolating it from everything else, right? It's why every single time we go to church, you know, for a feast, it's today is the day of salvation, you know, and let me tell you why, right? And every single feast is kind of, you know, marketed as the key moment, right? Because they are all ultimately aspects of the one reality of God uniting heaven and earth and to do that in its fullness requires everything that we celebrate across all the different feasts but of course at the heart of that 
is the Paschal mystery that mm-hmm. that that brings everything into into its meaning. The, so arguably, you know, the nativity, uh, according to the flesh of of the God Man, is the most important thing. But it's only the most important thing because of Pascha. You know, the mm-hmm. baptism of Christ is the most important thing, but it's only that because of Pascha, and so on and so yeah. forth. So 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 behind each of those feasts, which we can celebrate with great solemnity and great celebration and 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 marvelous hymns and ritual practices and liturgy and so forth and and it's so wonderful to enter into those you know separately throughout the church year but by saying separately we're not saying in isolation we're saying they are ultimately all paschal celebrations mm-hmm. so we got about 7 minutes left in the public side of this episode and uh, I do have one more question for the public side, but I, I want to uh, give a heads up to the questions I'm going to be asking you for the patron only uh, side of this double feature. One of them is talking more about that theological implications of incarnation, right? And that uh, so Jesus, the, the word of God came and took on a body. The creator entered the created. Um, so there's this, you know, that that's the one divide we sort of have in our Orthodox understanding. You have the creator and the created, and God actually enters the created. And is that not simply where the victory has been won, and then the crucifixion just being kind of an afterthought um, or something like that? Uh, so that's that's one question uh, I'm going to ask. That's more on the kind of deeper theological side of things, I think. And then the other one is... Um, we're going to look at the liturgies of Christmas and of Easter and compare them and, and see what comes of that. Uh, this is a podcast, after all, about liturgical worship. So uh, if you want to hear uh, Father Jeffrey and I talk about that, you can head over to Patreon. But I'm going to ask this final question in our public episode, which is, okay, so when we focus so much on the death and resurrection of Christ— people completely forget about the actual gospel narratives, right? That that the first thing that Jesus does in his ministry is to say the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. It's It, it has arrived. And we, we tend to think that, no, it arrives after his crucifixion. So, yes, the birth of Christ isn't, I guess, the fullness of the revelation of God, it it could be conceived as the major victory has already been won. He's born. He he is incarnated. He comes. He declares that the kingdom of God has arrived. He begins living as though the kingdom of God has arrived when he heals the sick and and brings justice to people. So the death of Christ could just be an exclamation mark on the arrival of the gospel, which has already been achieved. Um, yeah, that's that's my uh, that's my final public. Uh, steel manning of this argument, Father Jeffrey. What do you think? Well, again, there's truth in what you say, for sure, and and, and a lot of it, actually. And, and the problem with, I think, what you're positing as the, the kind of Easter-only focus, or in actual fact, in, in Christian history, it's been more or less the cross only, rather than even Easter only, right? So there has been a, a real overemphasis, I would say, in some quarters of Christianity on, you know, just looking at the cross as a kind of 
uh, moment that is, you know, the, what God does in order to bring people from from one state to another. In other words, you know, uh, the whole uh, you know substitutionary atonement, you know, theology, which we have in orthodoxy, but we don't overemphasize to the detriment of other aspects, including the incarnational fullness of, of, of salvation and so forth, right? So um, in, in that regard, and what, what you then get is a kind of uh, gospel or story of God read only in what I would call kind of creedal terms. In other words, we go to the ancient Christian creeds, like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, and we just kind of rhyme off the events that are recounted there. And of course, you get some mention of of Christ being born of a virgin, but then very quickly it skips to, and then he, you know, he died, <laughs> and then he rose again. As and and of course, this was in the context of you know making sure that key aspects of Christian dogma and proclamation were defended against you know, heretical uh, undermining, right, by, by those who would undermine those events. They were, those creeds were never intended to substitute for the fullness of the story, of the narrative, of the Gospels, and so forth. So I think a corrective is indeed to go and read the Gospels and do exactly what you just said, to notice that, you know, the kingdom is arriving, or is at least at hand, is near throughout the earthly life of, of Christ and is already manifested in people being raised from the dead, the, the sick being made well, demons being cast out, the blind being made to see with and and, and ultimately even in other ways that are, are maybe less obvious to us but are extremely important in terms of the gospel. And that is that the that God himself has come to eat with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners with the with the marginalized and the whole definition and understanding of what makes the covenant community of God who is righteous who is ultimately going to be in the banquet of the kingdom is completely upended right and expectations are you know for what the messiah for what deliverance and salvation look like are 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 very different you know, from, from what is being manifested there. So all of the, the fullness of the story of the gospel, I will give you that. That is precisely what we need to return to and understand in its fullness, right? So if, if saying that, you know, Pascha or Easter is the key moment means to exclude all of that, then absolutely, you know, it is quite right to say, no, we need to emphasize these other things, not instead, but, but as well. But I will return to this point. All of those events, all of the, the miracles, all of the teaching, all of the prophetic actions of God become man who upends expectations, who fulfills and culminates the history of Israel, but not in the way that people in the first century had come to expect. They were looking for you know, the political rev revolutionary to overthrow the Romans, to, to restore a king in Zion, to, to, to cleanse the temple and have, for the first time since the Babylonian exile, to have God's presence return to that temple. That was what was expected. And all the nations were supposed to notice and take note that God God of Israel was the God of, of the whole world. Well, all of that was happening, but not in the way that was expected. You know, so that was fulfilled. God had returned to Zion. God had become king. God was 
manifesting his glory to all the nations of the earth. And, and as will become clear, you know, through, through, through what the apostles learn after the death and resurrection, when the scriptures are open, they will see that that is precisely what's happened. That's what they will go out and proclaim, you know, to the world. But it's only post-resurrection that any of that begins to make sense. So in other words, all of those stories, which you are rightly putting pointing us back to and seeing themselves as ultimately salvific, right? They are part of the salvation of God. They are part of the manifestation of the kingdom. But nobody saw that until Christ rose from the dead, appeared to his disciples, opened the scriptures and broke the bread, you know, so both it's everything we do in liturgy, right? It's the sacraments, it's the, it's the proclamation uh, of the scriptures. He opens the scriptures and their hearts and minds to see that everything was now fulfilled. And so it's everything before the cross and everything before the resurrection can only be understood in terms of the, the death and resurrection and ultimately the ascension you know, of Christ. That's what makes, what brings meaning and, and, and narrative understanding to, to all of those events. Without those events, they would have remained, you know, what they were to the disciples, you know, before that, which was bewildering, uh, you know, confusing. They had all kinds of ideas about what was going to happen when our Lord got to Jerusalem, right? Their expectations, you know, they seemed like they were going in the right direction on Palm Sunday, you know, but by a few days later, the disciples had all run away because it wasn't happening according to their plan. So none of the events before that made any sense until the death and resurrection of Christ and that opening of the scriptures made sense of them. You've just finished listening to another public episode of Enacting the Kingdom. If you're getting value from this podcast and you'd like to support the show, you can head over to pryingpriest.com to become a patron. Also, five-star ratings with written reviews go a long way to getting the word out there about this show. Also, since Enacting the Kingdom is social media free, any word of mouth recommendations you can make to your friends and family would be greatly appreciated. We'll see you next time.